Welcome to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-out. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, James Lalonde, and today we have with us Professor Don Lewis, who is not only an international legal expert, but he has specific expertise in China law. And today, just like a lot of our podcasts, we're going to learn things that really no one in the field knows, and Don's got a lot of information about the newest and latest events that are happening on the Chinese side to support the legal infrastructure that will be required for the Belt and Road to be successful. It's going to be a really good uh, discussion, and thanks for tuning in. So, Don, can you tell us about your background and your move to specialize in Chinese law, and what in particular fascinates you about Chinese law? Well, James, I would say that... uh um, uh, first of all, that I specialize in both Chinese law and international uh, economic law, uh, which is a useful combination for uh, uh, BRI. Uh, I began my formal study of Chinese law at the University of London uh, in 1980, about a year after the promulgation of the first five Chinese legal codes in 1979. I was among the first cohort of U.S. Fulbright law professors to China in the mid-1980s. I then transitioned to Hong Kong and was a law professor at the University of Hong Kong Faculty Faculty of Law, where I taught Chinese uh, and international economic law subjects uh, for 23 years before returning to my home state of California. Uh, where I have taught at Stanford Law School and the University of San Francisco, uh, most recently uh, on China's Belt and Road Initiative. I am currently teaching a Belt and Road uh, Law course at the uh, China University of Political Science and Law uh, here in Beijing for their international summer term. I'm fascinated by Chinese law uh, for for a number of reasons, but... uh, 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 particularly because uh, it is culturally and ideologically uh, distinctive and autonomous from other major legal systems, despite being ostensibly a civil law system. It seeks its own path. Uh, Legal transplants have been selective, eclectic, and for the most part supportive of Chinese socioeconomic values and aspirations. China refreshingly embraces its own traditions, including administrative and informal approaches uh, to societal governance, which are indeed very different from the West. So, John, what makes the Chinese legal system different from other systems in other countries? 
especially for businesses that want to operate in China? Well, uh, James, uh, China uh, is characterized uh, distinctively by a high degree of administrative governance that has been reinforced and extended by socialism. In other words, uh, it emphasizes the important role of the neo-Confucian paternalistic state. Politics remains in command, not economics or finance. The legal system operates within, not outside of this milieu. As a result, socialist rule of law is quite different from Western notions. Chinese law is also characterized by a degree of legal instrumentalism, where law is just one of several governance tools available to the state and society. This presents opportunities for the exercise of administrative and judicial discretion in the application and interpretation of the law. Uh, Chinese law also consists uh, of a wide range of normative legal documents, many of which are administrative rules and regulations. These tend to be more important for foreign business than general laws or statutes or even judicial cases. Unlike common law systems, cases here in China do not have precedential value. There is no doctrine of stare decisis. That is to say, cases are generally not legally binding, although the Supreme People's Court has in recent years published so-called model cases. At the same time, China has rapidly developed, as many in China will know, uh, a very conducive legal and regulatory environment for foreign business and FDI. Uh, in fact, this has been a primary theme of the Chinese legal system for decades, uh, where there are clear legal incentives attached to uh, quote-unquote, foreign-related business activities. The FDI regime has undergone substantial liberalization uh, in recent years uh, with the opening up of many uh, economic sec sectors to foreign business uh, as a result of uh, China's WTO accession and, uh, uh, more recently, uh, the adoption of a national treatment plus negative list approach to FDI, not to mention the, uh, uh, the proliferation of wholly foreign-owned enterprises. The Chinese legal system also embraces globalization. Uh, Chinese laws and regulations are by and large WTO compliant, uh, although I'm sure the Trump administration would tend to differ with me. Uh, and uh, China is a strong proponent uh, of the WTO rules-based multilateral system. In fact, China is the new champion of globalization, as evidenced by the Belt and Road Initiative. So John, you know, that is an amazing summary and, but the, the problem for myself and a lot of our listeners is that, you know, as citizens and maybe business people and so forth that aren't, you know, legal experts, um, you know, how do we understand what that framework means? How does that translate into our day-to-day -day, uh, lives as far as, uh, you know, something that we can just get a hold of personally? Uh, what I have noted about China uh, in my last two visits uh, is just how prosperous the Chinese society has become. It is remarkable. And, you know, we're talking literally about tens of millions of Chinese who have been lifted out of poverty. Um, and that's to be contrasted, I'm sorry to say, uh, with the, the state and plight of many Americans. Uh, I mean, uh, our living standards have, have uh, stagnated to a large extent. But this prosperity uh, is, uh, you know, is something that doesn't just benefit 
Chinese citizens, it also benefits uh, uh, foreigners living in China, and of course, inevitably, foreign business that's uh, you know uh, operating here in 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 the mainland. Uh, there's you know there's a lot of uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, opportunities. Uh, there you know are these are profitable opportunities that exist uh, for for foreign business, and and indeed that's why they're here. I mean, this is the literally the largest uh, consumer market in the world. So, Don. How should someone who is not a legal expert imagine what the legal framework for BRI looks like? In prepping for this interview today, I looked at some of your writings where you referenced uh, BRI architecture and another phrase called the cyber digital silk road. And uh, so what opportunities do these things pretend for foreign businesses? Uh, well, James, uh, the BRI architecture is both a legal and a political framework. At its highest level, it includes China's strategic partnerships, uh, which it has with many BRI countries, uh, and its BRI MOUs. It also includes China's bilateral free trade agreements, China's bilateral uh, investment uh, uh, treaties, or BITS, and China's involvement in Eurasia and Africa uh, mega-regional trade agreements, or RTAs, such as RCEP uh, and the SCO. Uh, there is actually a great deal of international law adhering in these arrangements, which in fact governs foreign business BRI trade and investment. Many people do not know this. Uh, the BRI architecture is even more extensive, as China has adopted multiple international trade instruments and conventions, such as the WTO agreements, uh, and UNCITRAL uh, model laws and UN conventions relevant to BRI business activities. Uh, examples include uh, the UN Convention on Contracts for the International Sale of Goods, CISG, which the United States is also a party to, uh, as well as the uh, WTO Trade Facilitation Agreement. As a result, many legal aspects of BRI trade and investment are already in place. Uh, what will be interesting to see uh, is how Chinese law, culture, and ideology modify or reformulate such Western-inspired international rules. The cyber digital Silk Road constitutes the third Silk Road, uh, and it complements the new Silk Road economic belt, the land uh, Silk Road, and the 21st century maritime Silk Road. Arguably, it's the most important of the three Silk Roads, creating the digital and communication infrastructure for the other roads, which should produce much deeper global connectivity. There are, in fact, many strands to the cyber or digital Silk Road. Key sectors and industries that are implicated uh, include trade facilitation, including single windows, e-logistics, e-commerce, cloud computing, uh, artificial intelligence, or AI, fintech, including blockchain, and the Internet of Things. There is uh, already an emerging international legal framework for the cyber digital Silk Road predicated on, among others, the UNCITRAL model laws on e-commerce, e-signatures, and very recently on e-transferable records, which has direct implications for blockchain. Uh, China has uh, itself put in place national legislation implementing the model laws on e-commerce and e-signatures.
Well, Don, that sounds like an incredibly comprehensive architecture. And, uh, you know, as these contracts that support all this cross-border investment and the economic growth that's going to happen along Eurasia, you know, how are disputes going to be arbitrated? And uh, how do you see dispute arbitration in the BRI era generally? Well, the world of, I mean, if I can be quite blunt about this, the, the world of international arbitration and international dispute settlement um, are just about uh, 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 ready to be shaken to their very foundations. Uh, this is happening as we speak. Uh, there will be a major shift to China and Asia and away from the United States and Europe. This paradigm shift will impact commercial arbitration and uh, investment arbitration or investor state dispute uh, settlement even more so. Uh, in the fall of 2017, CTAC, the China International Economic and Trade Arbitration Commission, uh, issued its first ever investment arbitration rules, which are not simply a regurgitation of the UNCITRAL rules. The Shenzhen Court of International Arbitration has also issued its own investment arbitration rules based on the UNCITRAL rules. Likewise, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, or HKIC, uh, has adopted procedures that are specially designed to handle BRI investor state disputes. But this is not all by any means. For the last two years, I've been advocating the creation of a comprehensive BRI dispute resolution mechanism covering, among others, all BRI trade and investment disputes. A very important part of this mechanism has just been unveiled. You know, we've heard that China plans two international courts to resolve business and, and investment cross-border disputes. And uh, since we don't know what's going on there, we thought we'd ask you, uh, you know, related to the BRI, one in Shenzhen and one in Xi'an, which I think you've started to talk about a little bit. Uh, you know, what is the reasoning behind this move and how will the two courts operate? Um, this is the main feature uh, of the BRI dispute resolution mechanism that I just mentioned. Uh, and it is a BRI development of the first magnitude. Uh, in late June this year, the Supreme People's Court announced the inauguration of two China international commercial courts, uh, one in Xi'an to handle Silk Road economic belt commercial disputes, and the second in Shenzhen for maritime Silk Road disputes. The fourth civil division of the Supreme People's Court in Beijing will supervise the work of the two international commercial courts. There's now even a website, it's just come online, uh, for the international uh, commercial courts. Uh, an international commercial expert committee, composed uh, in part of foreigners, will be established, which will, uh, is envisaged as contributing to the resolution of BRI disputes heard by the international commercial courts. In terms of the subject matter jurisdiction of these new courts, it is clear that they will handle BRI international commercial and maritime mediation and adjudication. What is unclear, but appears likely, is that these courts will also endeavor to handle BRI investor state disputes arising under China's bits 
They may also handle state-to-state -state trade disputes arising under China's FDAs and pursuant to RTA dispute settlement mechanisms regarding RTAs that China is a party to. Uh, these would be earth-shaking developments, which could lead to the new courts, along with CTAC, displacing uh, I, I see uh, ICSID, uh, I see SID, ICSID uh, investor state arbitration, which is the major way currently investment uh, disputes are handled. Uh, while in the trade field, what we could see uh, is a diversion of a large number of state-to-state -state disputes, uh, trade disputes away from WTO dispute settlement in Geneva to China. There are, however, a few snags. First, investor state disputes are normally handled by arbitration organizations, not the courts. The reason is enforcement. Only arbitral awards can be enforced via the New York Convention. Court judgments cannot. Second, when China joined the New York Convention in 1987, the Chinese government lodged the so-called commercial reservation excluding investor state disputes from recognition and enforcement in the people's courts. This was followed by a Supreme Court notice to similar effect. There would have to be a withdrawal of the commercial reservation for all of this to move forward. Uh, but quite frankly, that should not be difficult uh, and is likely to occur in the not too distant future. Non-ICSID international investment awards, such as those rendered by the Permanent Court of Arbitration, uh, in the Netherlands are typically enforced via the New York Convention. I should mention that the BRI uh, dispute uh, resolution mechanism is really just getting underway, but is being organized in a comprehensive way according to the principle of joint construction and sharing and seeks to bring into play all of China's judicial, arbitration, and mediation agencies. Alongside the commercial courts, the China Council for the Promotion of uh, International Trade, or CCPIT, is establishing a Belt and Road International Dispute Management Center, which is going to be responsible for coordinating the development of BRI-related BRI international arbitration. Well, Don, I must say this has really been an eye-opening discussion, um, turning a lot of preconceived notions about the rule of law in China upside down. I think for most of our listeners today, uh, to be honest, they would typically say they feel that China is a place where the rule of law was not only not respected, but it certainly wasn't enforced. And, um, you know, what we hear today is that ever since the accession to the WTO nearly 20 years ago, China's been making incredible strides and, you know, catching up first, then now, from what I hear, innovating and perhaps even leading in the field of international trade law. So uh, pretty uh, amazing stuff. So there's one question I'd just like to finish up with, and that is, if I was a young law student and needed some advice on how to build my career, um, coming out of law school, what would you have to tell me? Yes, well, as, as Horace Greeley uh, uh, once said, uh, this was in the 19th century, and with reference to America, uh, uh, go west, young man, or in uh, the 21st century, uh, 
uh, young uh, lady or uh, young man. Uh, and that would be my advice. Get, uh, you know, get over here to China. Uh, uh, get involved in an exchange program. Uh, the, the Chinese law schools, I'm currently at the China University of Political Science and Law here in Beijing. They have exchanged relationships with a number of American law schools. Uh, you should inquire. You can come over here to Kupel. Uh, there are outstanding law schools now in China. Uh, Peking University, Tsinghua University, uh, a whole range of law schools. Uh, the, the University of International Business and Economics uh, School of Law, where I taught this past fall. Uh, so there are very, very uh, 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 capable uh, uh, legal scholars here. Uh, they are internationalized. They want to uh, engage in exchange. So by all means, get over here to China. Because what is going on, uh, as we've mentioned, is a, you know, it's a historic paradigm shift. Power is shifting to the east. Uh, and BRI is, is really the, the, the earthquake that is going to bring about this tectonic shift. Um, uh, and BRI is organized, uh, well organized, and it is being implemented. Uh, and it, of course, requires a comprehensive legal framework. Uh, there's going to be plenty of opportunities uh, for those who are interested in contributing to legal harmonization and regulatory convergence uh, involving China as the lead country, but countries from all over, Eurasia, uh, and, in, and indeed even Africa. This is a global initiative. I mean, to be able to participate uh, in something as historic and unprecedented as Eurasian, Eurasian uh, economic integration. That's what's going to be happening. We went through that process in the United States for a little continent like North America in, in the 19th and 20th centuries. But this is going to be happening for the largest continent with the most established uh, cultures and civilizations uh, in the 21st century. Uh, I think that's probably enough. Be a part of it. Be a part of it, absolutely. Well, we thank you for your time today. Uh, it's been actually inspiring. and. Uh, we thank you for actually just making the time on your busy trip here to Beijing, and uh, we hope to have you again. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, James. It's been a pleasure. Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, B E N T U R E S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week. <laughs>